Catholicism, the church of the empire, it conquered not by the love of Christ or by the humility of the Christian, but often by the sword. And unfortunately, the Reformation didn't do a lot to help that past, as many of the reformers burned what they termed to be heretics alive in the name of Christ. And the church has been known, unfortunately, for aggression and militant. And we, as Christians, need to make sure that our battle cry is love and that our sword is not to devour but our sword is to heal the wounded. And that's why that that hymn was written. Um, Just to remind us of who we are as a people and to try to to shed ourselves from some traditions that, that just aren't biblical and to make sure that our teaching and our doctrines line up with what the New Testament teaches. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so I appreciate your prayers. I know people pray for me during the week as I study, and I really appreciate that because God's Word um, is hard sometimes to rightly divide, and I'll just be honest with you. Let's stand, continue to stand, and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And we are going to read our text today, which is verses 9 through 20. This passage starts out with a question, and I will explain why the question is there and how this fits into an argument that began in chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged... It also could be translated, we have previously proven both Jew and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all together turned aside They have become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty. Hupodikas, which also can be translated accountable or hold culpable for their actions. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Father, this is a grave passage. But God, it's not meant to discourage us from seeking God. In fact, its intent is just the opposite. Its intent is to strip away every bit of man's goodness apart from God so that we will cast ourselves at your mercy and humble ourselves before you and seek the righteousness that you require. At one point, they came to Jesus and they asked him, what works must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that God accepts, in other words, that you believe on him whom he sent. God, help us to free ourselves today from religion and from all the things that we bring to the Bible and help us, God, to deal with this passage clearly and honestly and help us, God, most of all to deal with our own hearts and come to you with true humility and contrition and brokenness and help us, God, to understand how great our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. We pray this for your glory. Amen. You can be seated. So I've titled the passage, Man's Unrighteousness Exposed. So last week we spoke on God's righteous judgment is clearly manifested. But this is part of a bigger argument. This whole passage is a bigger argument that started in verses 1, 17, where it says, Herein is the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God. That's a grammatical term that could be expressed like this. The righteousness that God produces. Or the righteousness that God requires. Or godly righteousness. For in the gospel, that is to say, herein, that's the good news, that Jesus is the Redeemer. That is the power of God into salvation. In that message, God's righteousness that he produces is revealed as it is written from faith to faith for the just, those who are considered just, those who are considered righteous live by faith. And then we get to this passage that says there is none righteous. But apparently there are some righteous people. But they are not people who are self-righteous. They have the righteousness of God. So this passage is explaining man's unrighteousness. And God's righteous judgment, we read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 last week. And so this is part of a bigger argument that began in 118 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is clearly manifested in them for God has showed it to them. 
For God has displayed it in creation, even his invisible attributes, so that mankind is without excuse. So this is a part of a big argument that Paul is weaving together, and he's actually building a court case. And so in this passage, first of all, we see the evidence given on the things that Paul has previously said, that all those charges are valid. And then he brings more proof in 10 through 18, and then he brings the verdict. And in the verdict, no one is acquitted. In the verdict, all of us are liable. The court case is closed at chapter 3 and verse 20. And it leaves us hanging with only one hope for the righteousness of God has been made manifest in the law and prophets. That it's only faith in Jesus. So that's where Paul is going in this. It is a difficult passage. One of the many difficult ones that are found in Roman. But what makes it difficult for all of us is because we come with our presuppositions. We come with our baggage of theology that we were either taught or that we've heard from our church or from our pastor or from a, a, um, a theological book that is a systematic theology. But those systematic theologies all have an axe to grind, so to speak. They all have a pre- supposition that that they bring and they superimpose on this passage of scripture and that's what I tried to do this week is just to set myself free from all those things and I'm a product of my past my upbringing the churches that I've attended the churches that I've been members of the divinity school that I trained under the mentors that have taught me and I respect, but I don't have to agree with them in all aspects to still love them and respect them. So Paul is answering in this text a particular question to Jewish readers when he says, what then? The Jewish reader that he's addressing are those who ask the question in chapter 3 and verse 1, what is the advantage of being a Jew? If we are justly condemned and our circumcision means absolutely nothing unless we keep the whole law and Gentiles who don't keep the law but come to faith in Christ, their uncircumcision is counted as circumcision, then what's the big deal about being a Jew? And then he went to explain there's great advantages to being a Jew. For one thing, you have the oracles of God given to you. You have the covenants given to Abraham, given to Noah, given to Moses, given to King David, and then that new covenant given by Jeremiah. You have the holy sanctuary. You have the liturgy. You have the worship. You have the sacrifices. And of who came by the flesh, you have the Messiah. So you've got an abundant of advantages, but those advantages don't make you righteous. In fact, those advantages make you more culpable or more responsible or more accountable for what you know. And so Paul picks up their argument. He says, well, what then? 
Are we better than they? Because we have all these things. And Paul reiterates again, no, emphatically, we're not any better. So it's a Jewish question that's being answered. And that's the way we need to come to this text. Since they have some distinct advantages over the Gentiles, and I've enumerated those, in essence, the Jewish people were entrusted with the message of God and the Messiah of God. Does that make them better in regard to their nature? That's the question. Is their nature better than others? And the answer is no. We are all on a level playing field. You might not think you're a grotesque sinner, but the level ground at the cross is the same for every one of us. None of us starts at an advantage point. We all start at the same place as sinners. That's who we are. Paul is addressing human nature apart from imputed righteousness. That's the question that he's going here. When he says there's none righteous, no one seeks after God, the argument is that these people don't have it on their own. Apart from God's righteousness, there is none. So the idea is that no one is ontologically any better than anybody else. The word ontologically means by your very nature and essence of who you are. No one has a leg up on another person in this race for righteousness. Starting from Romans 1.17, the apostle gives the righteousness that can only be attained by faith. It's faith in God's powerful good news. There is no other portion of Scripture, however, in this passage that we're looking at, that explicitly divines the absolute and universal moral sinfulness of the human race. Let me just share with some of the words that we just read. First of all, it says, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Every mouth will be stopped. The whole world will be guilty and accountable to God. But now we must listen carefully to the conclusion. Because without the conclusion, this passage can easily be wrongly interpreted. What is the conclusion then? If man is in this moral depraved state what is the conclusion the conclusion is found for by the works of the law no flesh will be justified that's the driving point of this passage by trying to obey God's law no one will be justified that's the question that Paul is answering for by the works of the law is the knowledge of sin Remember, Paul is answering the question, are we better than they? Those who have the law are not justified by the law. They have lost their court case, in essence. Paul wants them to turn from self-righteousness to God's righteousness. That is the purpose of this passage. It's not teaching us that no one can admit that they need a Savior. No one can respond to God's initiative. That's not what this passage is teaching. And many theologians have taught that. A large group of theologians have taken this and have argued from this passage that no one 
can seek God if God draws them. That you must first be regenerated and irresistibly drawn. That is not a conclusion that we can come from this passage anywhere. This is how the logic goes of that theological bent. And the same theological bent that I was taught in divinity school. Number one, God tells man that he should keep all the commandments. We all would agree with that. Amen. The Bible is very clear. Second, all of us agree with this. Man cannot keep all the commandments. We, we are all in unity with those things. So no matter what theological background you come from, we can all agree on that. Number three, all of us can agree with this. God also tells man that they should believe and repent from breaking the commandments. We all know that's biblical. But the fourth assumption does not logically follow those other three. It's called, in debate, a non sequitur. It doesn't logically have to follow those first three points. And the fourth point says, because we should keep the commandments, we can't keep the commandments, we should keep on seeking Jesus through faith, but because we can't keep the commandments, therefore man cannot believe and repent from breaking the commandment. I hope you see the illogical argument there. It is a fallacy. And that's what we've got to break away from when we come to the Bible. We have to just say, what is it exactly saying? The fact that man cannot keep the commandments in no way proves that man cannot believe the gospel. The gracious appeal by God himself to believe and to be saved. That is the purpose of the gospel. Secondly, unwittingly, that theological position actually undermines the sufficiency and the completeness of the Bible. That's why the Bible is given. That's why God gave us his word. That's why Jesus performed miracles. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 32, Jesus performed many miracles that are not written in these books, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you will have life in his name. So it unwittingly undermines the authority and the power of the gospel itself because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, as Paul said in Romans 1.16. Third, it fails to recognize the very reason why the law was given. Why was the law given? Well, let's go to the Bible to answer that question. But the scripture or the Old Testament law, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, has concluded that all are under sin. That's why the law was given, so that we realize that we are all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That's why the law was given. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up like a shoal of fish encapsulated in a net, unto the faith which should after be revealed. Wherefore, or the conclusion is, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And that is what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. He's using the law. He's using the Old Testament Psalms. He's using the prophet Isaiah as a schoolmaster to strip us down so that we only look to Jesus. That's our only hope. 
We are in agreement with much of our brethren who have different theological slants. And it's more important that we major on what we agree on than what we disagree on. There's things that we all can affirm from this passage. We should all affirm that mankind does not take the initiative to seek God. Now, that's radical. But that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul is teaching here. I'll I'll, I'll explain that more, but that's something that we should all agree on. That if I was just left to myself, I would not seek God. But thank God that we are not left to ourselves. Thank God that he has painted creation for all of us. Thank God that he has put a moral compass and direction in every one of us, a conscience. That he's written those things in our heart. Thank the Lord that he has given us a understanding between what is morally right and what is morally wrong. I can't take credit for those. You can't take credit for those. And that's what God is trying to strip away from us, all of our arrogance, all of our pride, that none of us can pat ourselves on the back and say, I was smart enough to figure all this out, and I was smart enough to figure out that I needed to place my faith in Jesus. No, none of us can make that claim. And that's what this passage is going for, but it's not teaching us that I cannot respond if God does those things to my life and to my heart. We should all affirm that. But nowhere does this passage imply that man is unable to respond to God when God himself takes the initiative by sending his only begotten son into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. We don't need to go so far out of this passage to say something it's not giving us. Second, or my third point here is that not only has he given us creation, a conscience, and sent his son, this passage, like many others, are given for the very purpose. That's why Paul penned these words. He penned these words. The Holy Spirit had him go back. The Holy Spirit drew him back to these Psalms, the prophet Isaiah. Why? So that man would be persuaded, that man would be drawn, that man would say, I have got to abandon my self-righteousness. I've got to say, I cannot save myself. There's nothing good in me, morally excellent in my life. I've got to come to Christ. That's the purpose of this passage. Merit of salvation is impossible. Paul is concluding his argument that God's righteousness is based on grace through faith in Christ alone. So the first thing that he says in verses 9 and 10, well, mainly mainly verse 9, is that what then? Are we better than they? And the question is answered emphatically, not at all. And then he uses a unique Greek word, and it's translated previously charged. That's one word in the original language. It means to before or previously to prove and to declare something as evidence. So Paul is saying, I have previously brought the charge. I've previously proved all are under sin. So how is Paul, and I'm just going to give a quick survey of how Paul has previously brought all of this out evidently. One, They suppress the truth of divine creation, which is clearly seen to everyone. 
He's already proven that. What else have they done? They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Number three, they don't like to retain God in their knowledge. Number four, when they recognize gross immorality in others, they are actually judging themselves guilty. Number five, self-seeking people will be judged according to their deeds. Number six, the conscience will also accuse them because they have the law written on their heart. And number seven, every secret of man. Can you imagine that? This is the Bible. Every secret of man is going to be brought to light under the judgment of Jesus Christ. So God, through Paul, says, we have previously proven that there's nobody righteous. I've given you seven reasons. And then he says, all are under sin. Let's understand that statement. What does it mean to be under sin without exception? Romans 7, 14 says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, fleshly, sold under, same preposition, sold under, hupo, under sin. That's who we are without exception. So to be under sin, looking at that verse, Romans 7, 14, it means that we are controlled, we are influenced, and under its power. To be under sin means that I'm enclosed with no escape other than faith. To be under sin means that sin must be worthy of judgment and God's wrath. So now let's look at the proof. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verses 10 through 18. I'm going to just sort of summarize them. There's three things that Paul is pointing out. One, man's character apart from God's righteousness. The second thing that Paul is pointing out in this argument is um, man's conduct. And man's conduct is exhibited by what comes out of his mouth. And then finally, the cause for all of it. And that's because there's no fear of God. So let's look at man's character apart from God's righteousness, 10 and 12. What Paul is doing, he's quoting Psalm 14 for us. And I think the reason that Paul is quoting Psalm 14, because there's a parallel between Psalm 14 and Romans 1.18. Romans 14 says, The fool says in his heart that there is no God. What does it say in 118? It says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what the fool is doing. He is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because what is clearly evident is manifested in them, for God has showed it to them. For by the divine creation, we all know that there is a God. So Paul, I think, is going back to Romans, I mean, going back to Psalm 14 and using that. But then at the end of that that paragraph, he describes the righteous ones. So there are righteous people. There are ones that are seeking God. There are ones that are responding to God's drawing. So this is what Paul is saying about mankind without acknowledging God. It is the fool who denies God as opposed to those who God is with. God is with the generation of the righteous. 
Psalm 14 and verse 5. So the fool says there is no God, but God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, who are the righteous that Paul is speaking about? There is none righteous, no, not one. But in 117, he says, Herein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that the just shall live by their faith. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham had his faith accounted to him for righteousness. So who is the generation of the righteous? It is people who are not trusting in their own goodness, not trusting in the law for obedience, but it's men like Noah who believed God. He was a just man and righteous in his generation. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that Noah was a man of faith. It's Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's men like Job who was a just man and righteous. These were men of God and women of God who lived by faith apart from any righteous merit at all. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, But we all as an unclean thing, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Now, This is a difficult passage for us to to grab a hold of, this next verse, where it says, There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks after God. Like I said earlier, what I believe this passage is teaching is that no man takes the initiative to seek after God, that God makes the first move. It tells us in 1 John chapter 4, and it could be verse 19, that we love Him, right? Why? Because he first loved us. So man is not seeking God, but God is seeking man. No one seeks God. The word, it's a compound word in the original language. It's ek, which means to come out of, and zeteo, which means to seek. So literally it means no man will seek it out or no man will take the initiative. That's the idea of that word. No one will take the position to investigate on his own or to scrutinize or to seek oneself out or to seek truth out for himself or to even crave it. Now, you think about your own testimony. God did something in your life to bring you to that point where you bent your knee before Jesus. I know what God did for me. God sent me a Bible. It couldn't have been more plain. I was, I was out in my backyard wondering if there was a God. Who, who put that in my... Ecclesiastes tells us that God set eternity in my heart. God put eternity in your heart. Every man has this empty void that God has purposely done to seek you so that you will respond to that seeking. And the more you respond to that seeking, the more light God will give you. You may have been... at the at the dregs of sin and you might have been just at the emptiest point in your life and you said what am I going to do how have I gotten myself into this mess and God was using that to bring you to himself or maybe God put a friend in your life and you went down and you visited a gym and somebody gave you a bible and told you to go home and read that bible Or maybe you saw your spouse for the first time interested in spiritual things. And you're saying, what are you doing? 
So God is saying that no one is going to take the initiative apart from God. That's what he is teaching here. The idea that man left to himself will not take the initiative to investigate his utter need and utter dependence for God. Well, that is the good news, that God has come to you and I with this good news. God took the initiative to seek lost mankind. Again, there's nowhere in this text that is stated or even implied that man is unable to respond to God's own gracious appeals to you. Let me give you a kind of a silly example. None of us can go home today, get our cell phone out, and say, I want to call President Biden. I'm just going to give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> We'd like to probably. Some of us would. None of us can do that. But what if we looked on our caller ID and it says, Joe Biden. And I'm not going to answer that. That's your decision. That is your free will to say, I am not going to listen to that. Well, what if he left me a voice message? Well, I'm going to listen to that. He says, Pat, please give me a call. I want to talk to you about national security. <laughs> I cannot go home today and call Joe Biden. But that does not imply, it does not mean that if I get a text from him, or I get a voicemail from him, or I get a phone call from him, that I can't pick it up and talk to him. That's the fallacy. So God makes the initiative to us, lost mankind, but nowhere is it implied that man is unable to respond to God's gracious appeal. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, that is, in Christ, in Christ, that's so key, in Christ, God was reconciling who? Reconciling the world, cosmos. That doesn't mean plants and rocks and trees. It means humanity without exception. That's the way that word is used in this context. God, in Christ, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. And he's entrusted to apostles, he is entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we beg you, we implore you. Notice the strong language that Paul is using here. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God has inspired messengers that he has sent to you and I. God has written an inspired book that we can pick up and read. In Isaiah 55, 6, it says, Seek ye the Lord. I thought no one saw, saw the, listen, listen, the rest of the verse. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found of you. Notice that temporal idea. While he may be found. Call upon him when? While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, or return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is basically saying this. While you have the light of God's message, while you have the wooing of the Holy Spirit, while God is drawing you and showing you that I need something else in my life, that I am a sinner, that I am a liar, that I am... Not who I think I am, but God has exposed it. While I'm under that conviction, I have got to turn to Christ while he is seeking me. Jesus said the very same thing in John chapter 12 and verse 32. He says, when I, and if I am lifted up, what will God, what will Jesus do? He said, I will draw all men unto myself. 
It is God's drawing. It's his initiative. He sent his son. He put his son up on the cross so that all men would be drawn to Jesus. Next verse, Jesus said this. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might be the children of the light. Yet a little while the light is with you. Walk in the light while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. God sent his son to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10 God has ordered history and geography in everyone's experience. Why? So that men should seek the Lord. If happily they might find him and feel after him. For he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and have our being, as even the Greek poets acknowledged. So what two things has God done so that we would seek the Lord? How did God take the initiative? He has determined our times. And he has determined our geographical boundaries. So that people would seek the Lord. It's God who takes the initiative. So we're reading the story of Joseph in our men's Bible study. And it's interesting Yesterday, we see that God ordained the time, the very time when Joseph would get out of prison, and he also ordained the boundaries where he was going to live, that is in Egypt, so that men would seek the Lord. The entire known world was under famine at that time, and everybody had to come to Joseph at the right time and the right boundaries so that men would find the one true and living God. Do you think those pagans would have ever cried out, God, where are you? No. God put a famine. God put a man. God sent a man to Egypt. God ordained the times. God does the same thing for you and I. He puts limits on our times. He puts boundaries on what we can do so that we will seek the Lord and confess, I need Jesus. That's one of the great things about death. It's limited every one of us. And that is a sobering thought that when I leave this body, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what God was doing in the garden. He was casting Adam out so that Adam would seek the Lord instead of going back and trying to eat the fruit that, of eternal life. So that we would seek God. So, and, and this is what God has been doing throughout history. There's no one who practices moral excellence. Man's conduct. Just listen to what comes out of a person's mouth. For out of the mouth, the abundance of the heart speaks. And finally, the cause for all of this, there's no fear of God. So let's get down to the verdict. Point number three, the verdict, verses 19 and 20. We know, verse 19, now we know. What do we know? We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Three things that that passage teaches us. It tells us to whom it's sent, it's what has been sent, and why it has been sent. Why does God speak? To whom does God speak, and what does God speak? He speaks to those who are under the law, primarily Jewish people who have the Ten Commandments. Let's just look at the Ten Commandments. Every one of us has broken one of the Ten Commandments. You may have not 
thought about it, but we've all broken them. If not in principle, not in practice, we've broken them in principle, all ten. Every one of us. So the Jew who rested in the law, the verdict was to him, you're without escape. What about the Gentile who does not have the law? We're told in chapter 2, the Gentile who does not have the law, he does by nature the very things contained in the law, written in his heart, his conscience either exposing or excusing or accusing him when every secret thought will be brought to light by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's, that's who's to whom. What are the things contained in the law? The things contained in the law are moral precepts that are universal. Both Jew and Gentile knew instinctively, either by the law or by what was written in their heart. So this is a universal law. What's important by a universal law? That means that the law is objective and that the law is absolute. Third, what was the purpose? The purpose is twofold. Purpose number one, every mouth is stopped. No one can plead any righteousness of their own. All of the world is guilty, or better translated, the whole world is accountable. In order to be accountable, that rational, that reasons that man has a choice, that man has a will. The only way that we can be accountable, the only way we can be culpable, the only way we, we can be responsible is to admit that, yes, I chose willingly to do what was wrong. No one put a gun to your head. No one put a gun to my head. When I sin, I sin willfully because I choose to. And that's what the law was given. First of all, to shut my mouth and to say, yes, God, I am guilty. Hans Christian Andersen, I'll close with a tale that he wrote. Many of you are familiar with it. Um, these men came to town, and they came to the king and he said, King, you've just got to try out this new garment. And this new garment is sewn by these magical threads. And so the king watched them as they sewed. And he says, man, there's something wrong with me. I can't see anything here. I don't know what they're doing. And these hucksters, these scammers, they said, well, this garment shows who the really wise people are and exposes the fools and the knaves. The fools and the knaves, they can't see the garment. He says, oh, wow. Well, I, the king's not going to admit that he's a fool or he's a knave. So he says, well, let me put on that beautiful garment. So the couriers usher him down the street. And the couriers are saying, please, everybody, exalt the king for those wonderful garments. Because if you don't, obviously you can't see them. That reveals that you're a fool, you're a knave, you're an idiot. So everybody begins to cry, Oh, king, what beautiful garments you've got on. To the little boy, says, The emperor has no clothes. That's what Paul is trying to do here. I'm a good person. I'm really not that bad. And Paul is taking and exposing us that we are naked before God to whom we have to give an account one day. Likewise, Paul is showing, as long as mankind lives under the illusion that they are righteous in themselves, and they refuse to acknowledge the folly of their sinfulness in the presence of God's revelation, there can be no real appreciation for 
the gospel and no acceptance of the gospel into my life to receive it by faith that I need Jesus. That is the purpose of the section of scripture. I believe, I could be wrong, but let us not diminish it. Let us not look at this passage and say, well, this really doesn't apply to me. No, this applies to all of us. But let us not add to this passage and say, well, I'm just under God's sovereign decree and I'm just going to wait for him to do something. No, God has already done something, hasn't he? God has sent the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin. God has sent his son into this world to die for you. God has sent inspired messengers to draw you. It's if God was imploring through this Bible, be reconciled to God. And that is my imploring to you today. If you have not come to that point, trust Jesus as your Lord. Trust Jesus as your Savior. Stop trusting in your own righteousness because we don't have any. And respond to what God is doing in your life and say, you know what, God? You are seeking me, and I want to now turn and seek the Lord with all my heart and find him because he's not far from any of us. All he is is a whisper away. I've read so many testimonies of people in a lonely bedroom just crying out, God help. And they knew at that very moment, God had somehow supernaturally come into their life. And then God gave them the rest of the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer today, Rejoice in what God has done for you when you didn't merit any of it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you today for your words that is abundantly clear that we need a Savior. It's abundantly clear that God, unless you sought me, and you drew me and you convicted me, I would have never come on my own. Lord, I thank you that, God, that you have made it so clear that I have no excuse. No one has an excuse for not coming to Jesus if we really understand who we are and if we really understand who God is. God, we just ask now in the rest of our service to bless our time of communion we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the first of the month, this is a wonderful reminder of how much we need Jesus. Now, you may have not had a great week. You may have felt like, boy, I just didn't spend the time with the Lord like I should have. I said things this week. I acted in ways that I'm not proud of. Maybe you had a great week. And that's the temptation then to begin to trust in your own strengths. But regardless of where you're at this week, today we are here to remember the covenant that Jesus Christ made with us. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your personal faith in Christ, this communion is open to you. If you've not come to that point, no one's going to judge you. Because all of us are sinners, and all of us need Jesus, and all of us need his forgiveness. And this is why we take this every month. It's to remind us that Christ died and paid my debt 
in full. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful news? So if you're not prepared to take the Lord's Supper this morning, don't feel pressured. If you know that you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, but you want to know more, come and talk to me. I'll point you to another man in the church who can share with you who Christ is or another woman to sit down with you and explain the gospel to you. But this is for our church and for anybody who's a part of the body of Christ who's acknowledged Jesus as their Savior. And you might say, you know what? I just think I'm going to let the communion pass by me this, this Sunday. That's the devil. That's the world. That's the flesh. I want to give us all about two or three minutes of just quietness in your heart. You do business with God because salvation is by grace. In one simple prayer, you can be right with God. Isn't that wonderful? That is such good news. So let's just pause and pray as Tracy plays quietly for us. Grace is no excuse. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world is guilty. God, we're reminded that you've already witnessed the righteousness that you demand by the law and the prophets. It's the righteousness that comes by faith. God, we thank you for 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If any man says, I do not have sin, the truth is not in him. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I write these things to you so that you sin not. Not as an excuse, not as a license. He's writing these things so that we acknowledge, yes, I have a sin character in my life. I can't say that it's not there. I make your word void if I do. But yet, God, you have given me a divine nature by which I'm a partaker of Christ-likeness and every moment I can will to choose to submit and God I know I'm not going to do it perfectly every day but God I thank you I thank you God that the Holy Spirit is there always convicting always probing always pushing us deeper into faith and deeper into love with our Savior God, I thank you that none of us in this room today are what we were. 
a year ago. God, we're always being transformed as we look into the image of Jesus. Keep us on that path. Keep us with a hunger pursuit for you, Lord Jesus. God, I pray that we will be a holy church. I pray, God, that every month we'll take this time to examine our lives, to examine where we're going, that we'll get things back on track with you. And God, if we are on track with you, that God, we will rejoice for your keeping power, that your spirit is within us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. May the man who took up our offering, if you'll just come forward now to hand out um, the elements for the Lord's Supper. In the evening, he came with the 12. Now, as they sought and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say one to another, Is it I? Is it I? He answered and said, It's the one of the 12 who dips with me the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for this man not to have been born. And as Jesus was eating, he took the bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So Brother Rick, if you'll just ask God to bless and to thank God for his broken body on our behalf.
Jesus blessed it, then he broke it, symbolizing his brokenness on the cross. He gave it and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer eat or drink, and drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Keith, will you ask the Lord to bless the cup that represents his blood?
took the cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it as he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Taking up the cups, I want to relate a story that I heard from a pastor that I think will kind of help bring our teaching to a close. At bedtime, this pastor would always have a devotion with his kids. And one night, he wanted to impress upon them how easy salvation was, but how hard salvation is, yea, impossible without Christ. So he put all of his children, three of them, at the bottom of the stairs. He said, I want you to come to the top of the stairs without stepping on the steps. And they looked at each other and said, what is he talking about? He says, come on, I want to see you do it. So one of the boys, kind of a rambunctious little fellow, he got at the end of the hallway and he took off running as fast as he could go. And he jumped when he got to the bottom of the steps and made it about half the way up. The older daughter, she was pretty clever. And so she said, you know, if I can get my hands and my feet on the wall, I I can kind of just work my way up the steps. But she didn't have the strength to do that. And she got about four steps up and she collapsed on the steps. The little boy, he wouldn't even want to try. And he starts to mumble and complain. He says, I might as well just ask Dad to carry me up. And the dad went, hmm. And the older two siblings picked up on that cue by Dad raising his eyebrows. And the little boy got all excited. He says, Dad, will you come down and will you carry me up the steps? None of us can keep the law. But we can ask Jesus, Jesus, will you carry me up those steps? He's the only way we'll make it. Let's stand together and sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.